and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26. Gospel according to Matthew chapter 26. Let's pray as we come now to the hearing of God's Word. Father, we are grateful for the sure and certain hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful that His work, not ours, is the foundation of our hope before You. We are grateful that His obedience, not ours, is the reason why we can come into Your holy presence. For without Christ's obedience, we would be hopeless. We pray, Father, that You would cause the Lord Jesus to be revealed to the eyes of our hearts and our minds this morning in in a fresh way that we would see the extent of what He has done on behalf of His people and that we would be encouraged to cling to Him, to hold fast to Him, remembering that He certainly holds fast to us. Father, I pray for grace now as I speak from the Scriptures that Your Word would be plain, that it would be true and accurately proclaimed. We pray for discernment for Your people. We ask, Father, that all these things would be done for the glory of Christ and for the good of His church. We pray in His name. Amen. Well, imagine, if you would, with me, two men. Imagine two men, both standing at the edge of a great test of faith. The first man is confident and bold. He gives no evidence of fear. It's actually the opposite. He's quick to stand up and announce his willingness to go forward, whatever the cost. In fact, that familiar cliche, whatever it takes, would be a good way to describe this first man. He's ready and willing to do whatever it takes. His confidence is so great, he even inspires others around him to follow his example. That's the first man. The second man is quite different. He's distressed. He's troubled. He's not quick to stand up in the crowd. He's face down on the ground by himself alone with his thoughts. And as he lies there on the ground, this second man is weeping and begging, if at all possible, for something different. He's willing to face what is to come, but even in that willingness, he's so troubled, he could very well die. So two men, two very different pictures. Now let me ask you, which man is strong? Which man is strong? If you were there, which man would you follow? And let's be honest in our answer, it's the first man who appears the stronger of the two. He has all the outward markers of strength that we value. He has confidence, boldness, inspiring leadership, even fearlessness. The second man appears to barely keep himself together. He appears weak, even near the breaking point. So if we were honestly picking between the two, the majority of folks would say the first man, the confident man, is strong. And in this particular situation, we would be wrong. As you probably guessed, the scene I just described comes straight from our passage this morning. The two men are the Apostle Peter and the Lord Jesus Christ. Both stand on the edge of a great hour of testing and their responses could not be more different. 
Peter is confident while the Lord Jesus is distressed. Peter announces his willingness to do whatever it takes while the Lord Jesus is to be found on his face begging God for something different. The two could not be more different. And for all appearances, Peter seems to be strong. And yet, as Scripture will make clear, it is Jesus, not Peter, who possesses spiritual strength. It is Jesus, not Peter, who is strong enough to endure the hour of testing. For all of his outward confidence, Peter will fail, and he will fail miserably. And after all the weeping and all the distress, only Jesus is left standing. And He stands to the end. Our first assumptions about the two men could not be more wrong. And that, friends, is the challenge of this particular passage of Scripture. Please don't let the familiarity of the story dull the sharp edge of God's Word this morning. This text is challenging. We could even say it's disruptive. It confronts us on a number of level, a number of levels. It confronts our misguided view of strength. It confronts our tendency to overestimate our own abilities. It confronts our unwillingness to admit just how weak we are as disciples. And maybe most challenging of all, it confronts just how much our expectations for discipleship are still conformed more to the world than they are to the Word of God. For all these reasons, this is a challenging passage in the Bible, even though we may think we know it well. And yet, for those who humbly receive this challenge, there is a final payoff of great encouragement. God confronts us through His Word in order to change us by His grace. That's what He does. Remember, friends, it is always merciful of God to explode our delusions and cause us to see ourselves for what we truly are. That's always merciful. That's why this passage works the way it does. To be sure, it does confront us in challenging ways, but God does not stop there. Through His Word, He then reveals to us the unshakable strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hero of the harrowing scene in the garden. He was faithful to the end. And He alone is strong enough to bear the cross for us and our salvation. So above all else, that will be the takeaway from our message this morning. If you're wondering what the application is of this passage, this is it. We need to see the strength of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see it. If you're wondering what to pray as you listen Pray like this, Father, give me eyes to see Christ so that my faith might grow in Him. Don't forget the massive significance the Bible places on seeing the truth. Seeing the truth. Seeing is the beginning of transformation even before doing. We all with unveiled face beholding, or we could say seeing the glory of the Lord are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. If you want to change, then you need to see something new and something great. 
So there are certainly things we can and will learn about ourselves, but most of all, this text is meant to deepen our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't assume that every text of the Bible's primary application is for you to then do something. It's not true. Some primary applications are to see and wonder and behold and believe. That's how this text is. As we look now to the passage, we're looking at verses 30 to 46. The key to interpreting this text of the Bible is to pay attention to the contrast between the disciples and Jesus. Pay attention to the difference between the disciples and Jesus. It's in that contrast that we find understanding, correction, and encouragement. So as we go this morning, we're going to note four pictures of the disciples and the Lord Jesus with Christ getting the bulk of our attention. Four pictures. With that, I invite you to follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through the Apostle Matthew without error, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of Me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little farther, He fell on His face and prayed saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. And Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And He said to Peter, So, could you not watch with Me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, He went away and prayed, my Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. And again, He came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, He went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. Then He came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Again, we're focusing on the contrast between the disciples and Jesus with four pictures. And the first one is this. The sheep who think they are strong. The first picture is the sheep who think they are strong. Following the Lord's Supper, Jesus and His disciples head for the Mount of Olives. But as they go, Jesus makes a rather shocking prediction. Look again at verse 31. Jesus says, You will all fall away because of Me this night. Now that's not a very pleasant 
conversation topic for your stroll through the garden, but the time for pleasantries has passed. A great hour of testing is approaching, and in that hour, Jesus' disciples will abandon Him. That's the idea here. Abandonment. Desertion. It's a painful reality to consider. These men who have been with Jesus for three years, who have seen His miracles and heard His teaching and broken bread with Him, they've been with Him for three years, they will turn tail and run at the first sight of danger. Now, how does Jesus know this? How can He make such a shocking prediction with such confidence? Well, notice what He says next, again in verse 31. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is not going off of a hunch. He's speaking on the basis of God's Word. Specifically, from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. It may have been a while since you've read the book of Zechariah, so let me remind you what this text is about. Zechariah was a prophet, and he foresaw a day when God Himself would come and strike the good shepherd of His people. God would strike the godly leader of His own people. And the judgment would be so severe, it would cause the sheep to scatter, to flee, to run away. Here in Matthew 26, Jesus knows He is that good shepherd. Remember His words from John 10? That's where He gets that image of a shepherd. He knows He's the good shepherd. Which means He knows what is coming. God's judgment will soon fall upon Him. And in response, the disciples will flee. You see, they are the scattering sheep of Zechariah's prophecy. And that is how Jesus knows they will abandon Him. He's not guessing. This is Jesus living by faith in the Word of God. Now, before we continue on, friends, let's not miss the reminder here of God's sovereignty over all things. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that He purposefully rules and controls the course of history. From the rise and fall of nations to the movement of the tiniest molecule to the decisions of every individual human heart. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. His sovereignty, His rule is absolute. And we see a reminder of that here in Jesus' life. He's not surprised. Why? Because God determines how these things go. Jesus will soon be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and crucified. Yet, the Lord Jesus is not a victim. Every year when we come to the Easter season, we need to remind ourselves of this. He is not a victim. His life is not spiraling out of control. It's not Judas or the Romans or the religious leaders who determine Jesus' fate. It is God. God determines these things. We must always remember that the cross and resurrection are not God's plan B. Some kind of emergency response plan to the tragedy that is Jesus' death. God doesn't have plan B's. He has plan A. And it's the cross and resurrection was conceived by God the Father, fulfilled by God the Son, in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. God is running these things. And until we grasp that truth, we will not see the significance of what happens to Jesus. Friends, if you don't believe that it was God who delivered up the Son to be crucified, then you don't understand the Gospel as you ought. These things are no accident. They are the outworking of God's sovereign plan to save His people. That's why Jesus knows what's going to happen. 
Now, as we look back to the scene, we find the disciples do not take too kindly to Jesus' prediction. And if you know anything about the disciples, you know who's going to speak. Peter. Right? For all those loud mouths in the world like me, we're grateful for Peter, right? Because it proves there's hope for people who put their foot in their mouths. Amen. <laughs> Look at verse 33, where Peter's bravado is on full display. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, consider the brashness it takes to say something like that at this point. Peter disagrees with Christ, the man whom he has seen calm storms, heal the blind, and raise the dead. What's more, Peter even disagrees with God's Word handed down through the prophets. That's some kind of bravado. That's some level of brashness, and yet Peter is not finished. He keeps going. Jesus pushes back against him saying, Truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And still Peter doesn't back down. Verse 35, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You see, Peter is ready to take up the sword. Peter is ready to play the hero. Peter considers himself strong enough to join the battle and help Jesus bring in the kingdom. And that is precisely why Peter is so very wrong. He's not a hero. He's a sheep, just like the other disciples. He doesn't need to find his sword. He needs to cast himself on the shepherd who can lead Peter where he cannot lead himself. That would be the wise response at this point. But instead, Peter is foolishly boasting in himself. And why? Because he has failed to see himself as he truly is. He's not a hero. He's a weak sheep in need of the shepherd's strength. Understand, brothers and sisters, we're intended to see ourselves in Peter's foolishness. This is how you're supposed to read the Gospels. If your first reaction is to shake your head at Peter and consider yourself beyond his folly, then you haven't understood God's Word as you ought. Peter's response is a picture of what still resides in our hearts. We are often just like him. Foolishly boasting in our own strength instead of casting ourselves upon the Good Shepherd to lead and protect us. And lest we think that we are actually above Peter or beyond Peter's folly, let me just press us here. Seasons of prayerlessness where we, where we refuse to go to the Father in prayer, that's a sign that you're trusting in your own strength. Neglecting God's Word as your day-in, day-out spiritual food, that's a sign that you're trusting in your own strength. A hesitation to, to ask other people for help even though you know you need it. Trusting in your own strength. A, a dogged commitment to hide your flaws from others, trusting in your own strength. When the stress of life rises, this thinking that all i got to do is just push harder and I can get through it as though somehow the, the reservoir of strength needed actually resides inside of me, that's trusting in your own strength. You see, in a lot more ways than what we're willing to admit, we're just like Peter. We're not claiming to take up the sword and die with Jesus, but we are saying to God, actually, I think I can handle these things on my own. In so many ways, we are right there with Peter, foolishly trusting in our own strength. And that's why, friends, we must allow ourselves to be exposed 
by Jesus' words. He's talking to us. Let me just put it real bluntly. The rest of this passage will have little impact on us unless we come to grips with the fact that we are the weak sheep who cannot lead ourselves. I know it's not comfortable. I know you don't like to acknowledge your own weakness. I don't like to acknowledge my weakness. But this is how God's Word works. God is the master surgeon. He uses the scalpel of His Word to first open us up and expose us. And then, and only then, He brings the healing of the Gospel. You see, you've got to be wounded by the Gospel before you can be healed. You've got to be exposed under the Word of God before you can be comforted. So let's not scoff at Peter for his foolish bravado. Let's not shake our heads at him and wag our fingers and think of all the ways we might lecture him. Instead, let's humble ourselves enough to consider that we're actually just like him. This first picture is not just a picture of the disciples, it's a picture of us all. We are the sheep who too often think we are strong. As we continue on with verse 34, the scene shifts to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will spend time in prayer before His arrest. It's here that we see our second picture, the shepherd who displays true strength. The shepherd who displays true strength. Jesus goes off to pray and He takes His inner circle with Him, Peter and James and John. And as they go, the anguish of the moment begins to crash down upon Jesus. Verse 37 says, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Those words are not nearly strong enough to capture the sense of this moment. In fact, I'm not sure what words would do justice to this kind of anguish. I I, I looked for words. I couldn't find any. Imagine sorrow so deep it feels as though the life is being sucked out of you. That's something of what Jesus experiences at this moment. His physical body suffers under the weight of emotional, mental, and spiritual distress. Our Lord is deeply troubled. But then with humble transparency, Jesus reveals His anguish to His disciples and He asks for their help. Don't don't miss that, friends. Strength is not putting on a brave face, but acknowledging your need to others. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. You see, He asks for their help. Now, don't miss the connection with Jesus' earlier prediction about the disciples falling away. Here's a chance for them to prove their strength. Peter has boasted, so let's see what you got, Peter. Will they endure? Are they strong enough to remain here and watch with their Lord? But before we answer those questions, we need to see more of Jesus' strength. And we do that by paying attention to His prayer. Look at verse 39. Jesus goes a little farther, about a stone's throw away, and He falls on His face to pray. There are two parts to Jesus' prayer, and both are vital for understanding what happens here. First of all, Jesus' prayer reveals the reason for His anguish. It reveals the reason for His anguish. He cries out, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. That image of a cup is the key. Jesus doesn't have in mind just any old cup. Jesus is thinking about Jeremiah 25, where God spoke of the cup of His wrath, a cup of judgment 
that He would pour out on the nations of the earth. That is the cup Jesus faces at this point, And it is that cup that has caused His anguish. You see, Jesus knows precisely why He must go to the cross. He's not going to die as an example of how we must endure injustice. And He's not offering up His life as a model of self-sacrifice. None of those theories take seriously Jesus' prayer. Jesus dies to drink the cup that only He could drink. The cup of God's holy wrath. Understand, friends, Jesus is not upset about dying. He's not afraid of the physical pain. The beating with the whips, the mocking, the nails through the wrists and the feet, the suffocation as He hangs on the cross, none of those horrid realities could compare with the agony of bearing the wrath of God. He's not afraid of the pain. Listen, you cannot make sense of the cross until you see it as the Son of God dying for the people of God, bearing the wrath of God so that we might become the sons of God. That's the only reason, that's the only way to think of the cross in a way that makes sense. There's no other explanation for His prayer. He is in anguish because He knows the cup He must drink. Now, I don't know where all of you are at this morning. Maybe some of you are here and you're visiting or you've visited a few times and you have questions about Christianity. Maybe you've been around churches before, but you're still not sure what this whole church thing is about. If that's you, then I have good news for you. This truth is the heart of the Christian faith. Christianity is not a religious code you must follow. Christianity is not a way to clean up your life so that you can get into heaven. Christianity is not even really about you at all. At least not in the most important sense. At its heart, Christianity is about the Son of God dying for the people of God to bear the wrath of God for our sins. If that's not what you've been told Christianity is about, then you've never heard the good news before. And so the question you need to ask yourself this morning is, do I believe that truth? Forget all the other things that you may have heard in the past. Just this truth. The Son of God dying for the people of God, bearing the wrath of God so that we might be the sons of God by faith. Do I believe that truth? Do I believe that God's judgment against my sin was poured out on Jesus at the cross? That, friends, is the heart of the Christian faith. That is the essence of Christianity. And I pray God would give you grace to see that and to believe it. So Jesus' prayer reveals the reason for His anguish. If you keep going in verse 39, His prayer also reveals His humble strength. His humble strength. Notice how Jesus ends His prayer. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. As troubled as Jesus is by what He must face, He still submits Himself to His Father. Don't let anyone ever tell you that submission is a sign of weakness. It's not. Jesus is the strongest man who ever lived, and His strength is seen in His submission. You see, even in His trouble, Jesus keeps His eyes fixed on the Father's character. Jesus knows certain things about the Father cannot change. God is good. God is wise. God is just. And therefore, whatever God wills for Jesus is good and right and best. 
Those are the truths that give strength to Jesus' soul. And that strength is most clearly seen in His submission to His Father's will. Consider then the difference between Jesus and Peter. Peter thinks that strength is found in himself, so he boasts of taking up his sword. Jesus knows strength comes from the Father, so He humbles Himself in submission. You see the difference? It's as stark as the difference between swinging a sword and saying a prayer. And that's the pathway to true strength, is to recognize that it's not in yourself, it's not in being willing to do whatever it takes, but in being willing to submit yourself to the will of God, believing that what He has ordained is right and good and therefore best. This is what it looks like to be strong. It's not found in bravado or boastful claims, but in the humility to pray and submit oneself to a good and wise Heavenly Father. Jesus is the shepherd who displays true strength even in His anguish. Let's look now at verse 40 where we see our third picture. The sufferer who endures alone. The sufferer who endures alone. Jesus comes back from praying and what does He find the disciples doing? Not praying, but sleeping. It's such a sad moment, really. Jesus is fully human. He's fully God. And He's fully man. And so, think about Him here in His full humanity. Think about how sad this is. Here are Jesus' closest friends. The men whom He has invested in for three years, every day. Men whom He has asked to help Him and to pray for Him. And they cannot stay awake for even an hour. Imagine the loneliness our Lord must have felt at that moment. It's the middle of the night. He's in the garden. It's quiet. And He's the only one awake. He's the only one praying. He is so painfully alone. But it gets worse. This doesn't just happen once, but three times. Three times Jesus finds His once boastful disciples sleeping. Don't miss the significance of that number three. How many times did Jesus say Peter would deny Him? Three times. How many times does Peter fall asleep? Three times. He's not strong. He doesn't have what it takes. They will not stand to the end. They cannot even remain awake to pray. That's the whole point of the repetition. The disciples' physical sleepiness is a picture of their spiritual weakness. Now before we go on, let me just say here that loneliness is such a horrible human condition. There's a song that I like and it says that perhaps the worst pain of human emotion is the pain of loneliness. And I think that's true. And what we're reminded of here is what we saw so often in the book of Hebrews that Jesus can relate to His people. He relates to even the most heartbreaking periods of darkness and sleep and, and loneliness and downcastness of the soul. That's why we read Psalm 42 earlier in the service because Jesus is actually probably quoting from Psalm 42 when He says, My soul is very sorrowful. He knows what you are going through. He knows the loneliness. He can relate to you. Don't stay far from Him, but draw near by faith. Now, if we were in Jesus' situation, 
if we came back and we found these cats sleeping, we might have responded with a stinging rebuke. I can think of any number of biting, sarcastic comments I could have made to the sleepy disciples. I'm really good at sarcasm. That was sarcasm. I can think of any number of biting comments that I would have said to these guys. But that's not how the Lord Jesus responds. He responds with mercy. Even in His loneliness, He continues to care for His disciples all the way to the end. Notice what He says in verse 40. So you could not watch with Me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus is certainly pointing out their weakness, but He's also giving them the correction they, they so desperately need. Do you hear it in His words? He's telling them, don't boast, brothers. Don't boast. Pray and cast yourself on the Father. That's where strength is found. Friends, I take this to be one of the most merciful and kind moments of Jesus' ministry. Did you notice He doesn't question the motives behind their boasting? He knows they meant well. He says the Spirit is willing. He knows they meant well, but He also doesn't leave them in their delusion. He clearly and gently points them away from themselves and toward their Father who alone can give Strength. You see, this is how the Lord Jesus always deals with His people. With mercy. With mercy and with tenderness. One of my favorite books in all the world is an old Puritan classic by Richard Sibbs entitled The Bruised Reed. If you are hurting or weak or downcast, I would highly recommend that you read it. It was written a long, long time ago, but it's probably the best thing in print if you are downcast. The bruise read. In fact, I'll read it with you. Just come and ask me about it and we'll read it together. It'll be fun. The bruise read. In that book, Richard Sibbs dwells on the verse that says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's how the Lord Jesus deals with His sleepy disciples. He knows we are weak, but He doesn't break us. He doesn't snuff us out. Instead, He takes even the smallest evidence of life, even that just smoking wick of a flame, and He brings about a greater fire. He gently cares for us as we are. Do you see? As we are. So that we might grow. Oh, brothers and sisters, I pray we see our Lord in all His incredible mercy and kindness. You can come to Him just as you are with all of your weaknesses, with all of your needs, and He will not cast you out. Your faith may be fragile and He won't break it. He won't break it. He is gentle. He is kind. He is the Good Shepherd. And one of the ways that we honor Him is by coming to Him as we are. Not as we think He would like us to be, but as we are. And as if that truth were not enough, the Lord Jesus displays this kindness in the midst of His own isolation and heartache. Please don't miss the fact that only the Lord Jesus is praying here at the end. He's the only one praying. He is utterly alone in His suffering and still He cares for His disciples. In fact, He's more concerned for their well-being than He is His own. You know, there are many questions we could ask about this scene. Questions like, how can Christ be so sorrowful if He is fully God? 
But those questions are not the right response. As one commentator has said, the best response to the garden scene is not curious questions, but hushed worship and awe. May that be our response this morning. Jesus is the sufferer who endures alone, and even still, He cares for His sheep. And so, we come to verses 45 and 46, where we see the last picture, the Savior who embraces the cross. The Savior who embraces the cross. Jesus returns to His disciples a final time, but there are no more opportunities to prepare Peter and James and John may as well sleep now because there's no more chance to pray. Judas the betrayer comes and Jesus is arrested. The disciples flee, though Peter lingers for a little while. And Jesus goes ahead alone. What we should notice here is the difference between Jesus' posture in prayer and then His posture now as the hour of testing arrives. He was on His face in prayer, but now He stands in confidence and embraces the cross with complete willingness. Understand, friends, the Lord Jesus could have blasted His enemies with merely words from His mouth. He could have decimated these wicked men without even lifting a finger. But He doesn't do that. The Lord Jesus goes with the mob, knowing it will lead Him to the cross. And that's what Matthew wants us to see here at the end of the garden scene. The shepherd's strength is on full display, not as he destroys his enemies or boasts in his own ability to defend himself, but as he embraces the cross and goes to his death with complete willingness. Jesus' humility in prayer now bears fruit in his rock-solid obedience to the end. And why does the Lord of glory do this? Why does the author of life lay down his life? Why does the king consent to being treated like a criminal? Why does the word made flesh subject himself to words of hatred? Why does he do this? So that he might save his sheep. The weak sheep whom his father has given him. Friends, I I plead with you to dwell here for just, just a moment. Dwell here for just a moment. Let it sink in here at the end that there is only one man strong enough to stand. There's only one man headed for the cross. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. In His mercy, God has given us this picture in order to break our addiction of ourselves. We do not have what it takes to save ourselves. And listen, I know that you're probably going to say amen to that if you think like in the ultimate sense of getting into heaven, but I'm talking about right now, today too. Every day of the Christian life, every day of walking the road of discipleship, we don't have what it takes. Only the Lord Jesus is strong enough. We can't even remain long enough. We can't even remain awake long enough to pray. We are asleep and then we flee, just like the disciples. Only the Lord Jesus stands to the end, and he stands so that we might be saved. And he knew this was his mission. He knew this was why he had to come. Look back to the beginning of the text, verse 32. Jesus has just predicted the disciples following away, but notice what else he says. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus has not yet taken up his cross, but he already knows, he already has his eyes fixed on the resurrection. Again, Jesus knows where things are going. He knows that even as He embraces the cross, He does so with the confidence of victory. 
He knows the Father's will is not just that the Son would die, but that the Son would rise again to take His rightful place at the throne of the universe. And did you notice Jesus' hopeful statement, I will go before you. I will go before you. Friends, there is a world of gospel hope in that one phrase. In fact, I take that phrase to be a summary of the entire scene. Jesus goes before us, leading us where we cannot lead ourselves. So look to Him this morning, brothers and sisters. Let the truth of God's Word stir in you a renewed trust and confidence in Christ. He alone is strong to save and He is strong to the end. Your sin is no match for this man. Your deepest failings are not worth comparing to the work He has accomplished. So entrust your life to Him. He will not fail and He will not let you fall. In fact, He will give to you from His own strength everything you need to hold fast to the end. This is why God's Word exposes our weakness so that we might flee to the Christ who alone is mighty to save. So as you read these final verses, as you read this familiar scene and you see the Lord Jesus striding toward death on the cross, don't read it just as the history of Jesus' final hours, though it is history. See it also as the strong shepherd leading you where you could never lead yourself. He is the shepherd who displays true strength. He is the sufferer who endures alone. And He is the Savior who embraces the cross for us and our salvation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace of Your Word that confronts us in our weakness and exposes what we truly are so that we might flee to Christ and find in Him what we could never find in ourselves. Thank You, Father, that the Lord Jesus is faithful to the end. Thank You that He is strong enough to endure the cross. Thank You that He now gives us of His own strength everything we need that we might hold fast to the last day, trusting that He indeed holds fast to us. We pray this, Father, for His glory and for our good. Amen. Would you all please stand? Rather than...